Well, children, I've just, I've just noticed, actually. I wonder if you can see something I've just spotted. What's changed here in the pulpit area? Anybody tell me? A few hands going up. Oh, one hand's gone up. Isla. New flowers. Yeah, aren't they lovely? A new summer display of flowers. Well, may there be a display of the gospel here before our eyes together this morning. We're in Luke chapter 4. I'll just find the passage again myself, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And um, we were looking last time at the Lord Jesus Christ being rejected so violently in Nazareth as he uh, declared to them that the prophecy in Isaiah had been fulfilled in their midst, that the Messiah had come, that he was the Christ. And as he sat down, people initially spoke well of him. Then they began to uh, talk among themselves. Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the the carpenter? What high things he's declaring about himself. They were offended uh, at him. And one thing they said to him was... um, Do hear, verse 23, do hear what we heard you did in Capernaum. Do it here as well. We've heard great things that you've been doing, uh, signs, wonders, miracles. Back up your claim to be the Messiah. Do hear what you have been doing in Capernaum. Well, now Luke's going to go on to tell us verses 31 to 44, the rest of Luke chapter 4 just what had been going on in Capernaum, because the incident in Nazareth that we've already looked at happens after the things that took place in Capernaum. I mean, the question really comes, why is Luke inspired by the Spirit to put the Nazareth incident up front? It comes at the head of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. Luke is inspired to start in Nazareth, but the events in Capernaum had preceded what happened in Nazareth. Why is Luke inspired to put Nazareth at the head? Well, two reasons come very much to mind. Number one, the events in Nazareth serve to act as a cameo of all his public ministry. And that cameo of his public ministry is one of opposition, particularly from the religious authorities. And that opposition is in fulfilment, again, of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. Isaiah 53 and verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. That's what happened in Nazareth. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. And we, and the people in Nazareth, would agree. We esteemed him not. They drove him out to the synagogue, up the hill, and would have pushed him off the cliff. But he miraculously moved through the crowd and went on his way. So what happens in Nazareth is a cameo of his earthly public ministry. And also what happened in Nazareth is a pointer towards Calvary. The people there in Nazareth sought to kill him. They'd take him up the hill, they'd throw him off the cliff. 
But that wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right place. It would be publicly before a vast crowd. It would include Gentiles as well as Jews. The whole world is condemned by that act. The whole world is saved through that act. It wouldn't be off a cliff. In Nazareth, it would be publicly outside the city of Jerusalem. But it's a picture of what was going to happen at Calvary. Again, Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was, dis- was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Luke is inspired to put this event in Nazareth at the head of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the people in the synagogue say, do do hear what you've done in Capernaum. So now Luke tells us what had happened in Capernaum. And that's the rest of Luke chapter 4. And the first incident is this casting out of the demon from the man in the synagogue. But before we get to that, we can learn again. The first point is the teaching of Jesus Christ. Verse 31. And he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Now let me emphasize again, because this is the central teaching about the public ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, He was primarily a teacher. They called him teacher, uh, rabbi. And Christianity is primarily a message (coughs) that is declared, either from pulpits, certainly from pulpits, but by every individual Christian, as we have opportunity, uh, we are there to declare uh, a message that's backed up by a transformed life. And that is the predominant sign today. As people ask for signs, what they need to see is the gospel actually works. It is the power of God to save from sin. And that means our lives are transformed. So if you're witnessing to a family member, you become a Christian, they're not yet converted. What is the sign that will confound them? You've changed. You've changed. Christianity Primarily a message that demands a response. There's the gospel. There is a God to be known. He's your creator. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of the heavens and the earth. He is there. Why don't we know him? Sin has separated us from our God. Sin means we're going to an ultimate judgment before that holy God. And if sin is still to our record, we can't go home to heaven. And we're thinking about heaven, God willing, uh, this afternoon for a little while. But here's the good news of the gospel. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a way that is open and all may come in. Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. Don't wait to get better. Joseph Hart's hymn tells us, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, sinners Jesus came to call. So you recognize your mess and your problem. You're a sinner before a holy God. Don't try and reform yourself, you can't. 
The veneer will soon wear away. Come to Jesus Christ. He's done all things for you. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose again. On Calvary, he took your sin and your sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary. He suffered and died alone. How marvelous. How wonderful. And my song shall ever be. Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can do helpless sinners good. So Christianity is a message and Jesus preached a message and we preach and declare a message. And that message demands a response. There was a response here in Capernaum, verse 32. And they were astonished at his teaching. So it's not Nazareth now, it's Capernaum. This is what had happened before. Do what you did in Capernaum. Well, Luke's telling us now what happened in Capernaum. He was in the synagogue there. And he taught them. And they, the people listening, were astonished. You might say they were gobsmacked. They were taken aback. They were riveted. They were fixed on this uh, remarkable teacher and the teaching coming from him. They were astonished at his teaching for, now listen to this, his word possessed authority. Going back to uh, Mark's account of Capernaum, Mark puts Capernaum up front and the Nazareth account comes uh, later on in um, in its chronological order. But here's Mark in Mark chapter 1, the same incident in Capernaum, Mark 1, 21. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching for he talked as one who had authority. And here's the contrast, and not as the scribes. Faithful scribes, they'd heard Sabbath day by Sabbath day. Take the scroll, open it up, read it, give a few thoughts, a little illustration, roll it up and give it back. And the people say, very nice. And uh, some Mrs. uh, Craddock at the back, she's asleep. And uh, old Hezekiah, well, he's nodding off as well. Some are uh, playing with with, uh, one or two things. And and then they they go out and they, they have their dinner. But not this day, the fiery young preacher from Nazareth. There's a difference. And they noticed it. And there are two types of preaching that have echoed down through the ages. From Adam right up to the present day, particularly in gospel days. Two types of preaching and only two. One is in the flesh. Now it might be faithful. The minister comes, the preacher appointed and he reads the passage. He's done his study and he gets the, the Greek right and he opens it up and he's done cross-references. He makes a lovely message and it's there, it's faithful, but it's flat. And it's facts. There's another faithful preacher and he prepares the, the, the message, still in the flesh. And it, it's faithful. It's fascinating because the illustrations he's given there. Fascinating illustration. It, it's, it, it's facts again. <clears throat> and these two Uh, Men, whether they're flat or they're fascinating, both in the flesh, they they might engage the mind. They might uh, move the heart a little bit. But they never hit the spot because it's in the flesh. They never hit the spot. They never move the will of that man, woman, child or young person towards God. 
And that's the point of it all. That I be transformed and changed. Oh, please. Please, Lord. When I step down from here and I sit under a ministry, I want to be challenged every Sunday. I don't want to be able to sit in a pew and be comfortable. And I'm, I'm, I'm trusting that Romans 12 is particularly uncomfortable. I trust it will be again tonight because we're looking at application of the gospel and how we ought to be responding. And since we're not, and I'm not, it ought to be uncomfortable. Preaching the flesh can never do that. It might fascinate the mind. It might warm the heart. Oh, that's nice. It doesn't change a life. That's one type of preaching. And then there's another, and it happened in Nazareth. It happened in Capernaum. And it's spirit-enabled preaching. And Jesus Christ, it happens to him on his baptism. Luke 3 and 22, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. He's given the Spirit without measure. And then Luke chapter 4 and verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Jesus' earthly ministry was in the power of God the Holy Spirit. As the Son of God, he did not use his innate power as the eternal Son of God to preach, but he relied on the enabling power of God the Holy Spirit, whom he had received without measure, to carry out his earthly ministry. And that was the transformation that people saw. They'd known him in Nazareth for 30 years, but now there's something very different. He's come in the power of the Holy Spirit, and here is his public ministry. And so it should be with every gospel preacher. Certainly true of Paul. It's said, I mean, people, I don't know how people do these calculations, but the Apostle Paul <coughs> is reckoned to have been one of the top ten greatest intellects in the history of planet Earth. And I'm not sure how they work it out, but you take the writings of the Apostle Paul and clearly you have a, a man with a great intellect, they would imagine, to, to write such things as Paul was used to, to write. But he says, he's very clear, whenever he went to a new city or back to a city and declared the gospel, he didn't rely on his own intellect. He did, it was used, of course it was used, important to study. So in Corinth, he says this, 1 Corinthians 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, Christ-centered, cross-centered. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Holy Spirit-inspired preaching is what Jesus Christ declared in Nazareth and Capernaum, and it's what Paul declared in Corinth and every place where he went. In Thessalonica, he says, my word came to you not in word only, it was in word, but also in power, the Holy Spirit, and with much assurance. That's why Paul can say to the church in Rome, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save those 
who will believe. Now, just to pause for a moment for application. I'd say to us as a congregation, to me and to you, uh, pray for this. Pray for spirit-empowered preaching. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Spirit to those who ask him? Pray for spirit-empowered preaching. So we're going through this book at uh, Home Group's Duties of Christian Fellowship by John Owen. It's a Puritan paperback. I'd recommend it to every church member to uh, have a copy and, and to read it through. 15 what John Owen calls rules. Now, of course, being 21st century Christians, we don't like rules. So let's call them uh, strong suggestions. Let's call them uh, um, responsibilities of being a church member. Because we don't like rules and and regulations, do we? But um, responsibilities. Uh, Romans 12, in view of the mercies of God. What's the Christian response? And rule number three that we looked at last Wednesday. Prayer and supplications are to be made continually on a pastor's behalf that he might receive help and success in the work that has been given to him. And later on, Owen saying, the rule requires that prayer be made for assistance, encouragement, ability, success, deliverance and protection. Prayer made for the pastor. And uh, to pray this, that there would be power in the preaching. As I was preparing this, I remembered the, um, the true accounts in uh, Welsh history, it goes back to 1858 and 1859. There was a great revival throughout Wales. And it began in the churches. And uh, there was a man, one particular man, that came to my memory. A man called David Morgan, who was a, a faithful preacher. Um, but he was... He, and I don't want to belittle He was quite an ordinary man. There's nothing spectacular about him at all. Uh, But suddenly something happened to him. And here's the account. In October 1858, the preacher David Morgan went to sleep one night and woke at 4 a.m. a changed man. He was endued with an extraordinary memory for spiritual things. His preaching from that date was marked with a new power. It has been said that Morgan went to bed like a lamb and walk as a lion. Something changed, and the congregation knew it. And uh, many were converted in his chapel and the surroundings. And in 1858-1859, around 100,000 genuine converts were added to the church in a 12-month extraordinary period of uh, spirit-empowered preaching and work for the gospel. So transformed was uh, David Morgan. He has another... Uh, account. Uh, people began to sit up and take notice. He, he had a lot of criticism because of his direct, spirit-empowered preaching. Some were critical of David Morgan's preaching during the revival. He passionately would urge sinners to turn to Christ without delay. So what time is it, children? It's time to believe. And that's what David Morgan would say. Turn to Christ without delay. One of his critics, John Jones of Blynanach, was none too happy with this, and he tackled the young minister on the subject. What is this I hear about you, David, my boy? said John Jones. 
What have you heard? asked David Morgan guardedly. What have I heard? What means this lugging of people into church fellowship without giving them time to sit down and consider the count at the cost before beginning to build? What time ought a sinner to get to consider, Mr. Jones? More than you give them by all accounts. You are criticizing my method. What is your idea of a reasonable period for considering this great question? Accepting the challenge, John Jones retorted, a month is not too much at least. David Morgan replied, well, well, God's spirit says today, the devil says tomorrow, but the old evangelist of Blinanach says a month hence will do. No, no, it's today. Today, today, if you hear his voice, <clears throat> do not harden your heart. It's not tomorrow. Devil says tomorrow. And some wise Christians say, well, give it a, a month or two. But today is the, uh, the injunction of the scriptures. Now we come to the incident itself, the recognition of Jesus Christ in the synagogue in Capernaum that day. The question that the gospels seek to answer for us is this, who is Jesus Christ? And the first to give the right answer to that question was a demon. It wasn't a man. It was a demon possessing a man there in the synagogue on this particular day. Verse 33. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. There's the man. He's sitting. He's in the congregation on that particular occasion. Jesus is preaching the power of the spirit. And there's a man. He looks like any of the others. Maybe there's something slightly odd about him. Becomes quite apparent there's something very different about him. But at the moment he's sat in the congregation and we're told he has the spirit of an unclean demon. Now going back 2,000 years before Christ's death and resurrection, human possession by demons is, is very common. We meet it many times in the Gospels. Uh, today it is rare it's not unheard of, but it is rare because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. And the nations who were once deceived have now been released in gospel power. It was once common, now it is rare. I think in my ministry here, 21 years, my uh, Christian uh, life, uh, 40, coming up 45 years, I think I've encountered such a thing once. And it's very memorable, and, uh, but it's rare, it's rare. So there's the man, and now the demon, he speaks through the man, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? There's his, uh, on the human level. They all knew that. He's a carpenter from Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? Extraordinary power then in this young man from Nazareth. I know who you are. This is extraordinary. Nobody else did. They're going to throw him off a cliff for declaring it in, uh, in Nazareth shortly. I know who you are. 
I've seen you before. I recognize you from the realms. I know who you are. When I fell along with the devil, I've seen you before. What are you doing here? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. Jesus very quickly rebuked him saying, be silent. See the power now. Here's his word with authority. Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, notice this, having done him no harm. And the congregation are amazed. Are we amazed this morning? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned and clear. Have we lost our amazement at Jesus Christ and the wonder of the gospel? Now something happens in the synagogue in Capernaum. They were all, now nobody's left out. Mrs. Craddock has woken up and old Hezekiah, he's not nodding off anymore. And those uh, one or two, they stop playing around. They're all riveted by all now. Nobody's been missed out. I'm looking around this morning, some glum looking faces, some smiles, but you've mostly got masks on, so I can't really tell. That some interesting eyes, some disinterested eyes, some eyes that are fixed and attached. Others that are still in the middle of the night somewhere. But not in, not in Capernaum that day, not in Capernaum that day, because it's preaching in the power of the Spirit. All were amazed and said to one another, what are you going to say at the end of the service? I don't know. What are you saying now? They said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Now let me conclude this morning by saying this uh, exorcism of the the demon it's interesting it shows the power of Jesus Christ over the devil and all his uh, fallen angels and in Jesus Christ we are safe from all his dominion and power we ought to pray for protection day by day and we have it in the gospel but this exorcism this casting out of the demon is really it's a gospel picture for us here this morning in the chapel and listening on YouTube as well It's a gospel picture. See, the problem is not demon possession. That's rare, but it's being possessed by sin, inhabited, invaded by sin. We're born as sinners, and that's the the problem. And our sin is our rebellion against God. It's going our own way. It's having our own thoughts. It's living as if he were not there. He gives me breath and life. He keeps my heart beating. I'm only here for a brief period, however long it might be if it's... uh, uh, a month or it's uh, 110 years it's a specky specky speck 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 in the light of forever but the gospel tells us that the sin means we can't go home to heaven that's the problem and the only answer is Jesus Christ right? there's a way back to God from the dark path of sin there's a way that is open and all don't miss out may go in Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. Jesus is very clear. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Why? Well, he's the only one who's dealt with the problem. Morality won't deal with sin. Church going won't deal with sin. Religion doesn't deal with sin. Only Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ. And he has the power to take away your sin.
far greater than casting a demon out. Don't know what happens to the man subsequently. Does he remain a sinner? If so, that's of no great help to him. It's a picture of the gospel. He casts out the, the demon. The demon has to obey. But to cast out your sin is the greatest thing that could ever be. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in me today. Can you pray a prayer like that? Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for me. Now, Wesley puts it, of course, th- this way. It's all the work of, of God. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin. The nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, chains of sin. My heart was free, now free to serve God. I rose, went forth. And follow thee. The proof I'm really saved is I follow Jesus Christ. My life is transformed. My disposition is love and others rather than hatred and, and, and self. It's a transformation. Now, you, has it happened to you? Has it happened to you? Pray it would do even now. Repent and believe. Not tomorrow. Not tomorrow. Today. Now is the day of salvation. Repent. And believe, would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. And as Christians, would you live for him? Stay close to him. It's not in your own strength. You you will fail. Whatever you're facing today, face it looking to Jesus. So repent, believe, be transformed, and keep on being transformed. And may we be astonished and amazed at the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this brief time in your words. We do pray you'd help us to hear your voice and to respond in a spiritual way to the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. To God be the glory, we pray. Amen.